Hello and welcome to the EUISS podcast, a conversation on foreign policy what-if scenarios. My name is Florence Gaub, I'm the host of the show, and with me today is Andrew Wilson, Senior Policy Fellow at the ECFR. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Florence. We are today in the third episode of our Russian Futures series. We are actually talking today about the neighborhood of Russia. You also contributed a chapter to the Russian Futures publication that came out with us just a few weeks ago. And I want to discuss with you today Belarus. So the scenario that we have here is set in 2030. I'm just going to read it to you, the audience, as a little glimpse towards the future that we're going to discuss. So on 8 March 2030, President Putin and President Viktor Lukashenko, who is the son of former President Alexander, handed flowers to the female employees of the Askravets nuclear power plant in celebration of International Women's Day. Since the two countries established an economic confederation in 2025, scenes like this, reminiscent of the Soviet past, have become common in the carefully curated by Rosnet. But despite the seemingly amicable and warm relations, tensions have been running high between the countries over the past few years. So we are in 2030. We are in a future where the son of Lukashenko is the president of Belarus and gets along pretty well with Putin, who is also still in power. So can you tell us a little bit about how this scenario came about? Well, without bragging too much, we prepared the publication before the elections in Belarus on August 9th of this year. So we predicted that this chain of events began with election fraud and protest. But Lukashenko was able to survive those protests and staged a kind of managed transition to an election that uh, his son won subsequently established an economic confederation with Russia. So technically, Belarus remained an independent state, but its sovereignty was kind of hollowed out. And so the two were kind of close partners at the end of the decade, starting with this key election in 2020. And so what are the drivers that made this scenario come about? I mean, there's obviously a decade between today and this scenario. And by the way, I think you should totally brag when you get a future prediction right. What are the pathways that led to the situation that we just imagined, where Belarus is close to Russia and the son of the current president is in power as well? Well, the key players are Russia and Belarus. Part of our scenario was about excluding other actors, or at least demonstrating their weakness, relative inability to drive events. So Russia's motivations, it's intervened in the current crisis without yet deciding what its exact priorities are. I don't think Russia is sure how long it wants to keep the current president, the older president, father in this relationship in power, when an actual transition might be. Let's talk of some constitutional process and Lukashenko handing over power at the end of that. There are various types of successor that Russia could want. It could want someone to do its dirty work, basically to repress the domestic protests, keep a lid on things. It could try and choose someone who had a broader domestic support base than Lukashenko, who was able to kind of build bridges with domestic forces as well. But the main candidate for that kind of role, Babariko, one of the people who tried to stand in the 2020 election but was excluded and jailed by Lukashenko. He's still in jail. There are some indications that Russia would prefer him. Or you could have some kind of leader who was the kind of equivalent of East Germany's leaders after 
1945, who'd spent the war in Moscow and were complicit in allowing Moscow to dismantle half the economy and ship it east. Can we perhaps talk about the son for a second? Because in this scenario, he becomes a successor. Why would he be a good candidate to succeed to his father? Or why would Russia want him to become the successor? It depends what role he's playing. The first scenario that I outlined, suppressing domestic protests, that would make you kind of a Belarusian equivalent of Yaroselsky. Second scenario is building bridges with the people who have been protesting. That seems least likely. And the third scenario is bridging towards giving Russia what they want economically. So the assumption in our scenario was that uh, Lukashenko was able to do one and three and therefore had to rig the elections to um, win in 2024 without much of a power base for himself domestically. What is in for Russia? What, what is Russia's motivation to move ahead as it does in the scenario to seek uh, closer relationships or to keep Belarus in its orbit, let's put it this way? And where's the EU also? Back in 2014, Russia, Putin, made much of the propaganda claim that Krimnash, Crimea is ours. So in this scenario, Belarus is ours, but in a different way, not via formal annexation, but by hollowing out the sovereignty of the state. So Belarus remains technically independent, but closer politically and economically to Russia, a loyal satellite. So formal sovereignty is much less of a problem. And then perhaps Russia can copy that model for other neighboring states. It doesn't have to annex them, but it gets to control them. And the EU in this scenario is marginalized, unable to prevent the de facto loss of Belarusian sovereignty and with considerable drawbacks for the immediate neighborhood, neighbors, if you like, economic damage to the immediate neighbors, Latvia and Lithuania. A lot of Belarusian transit trade currently goes through those two states. But in our scenario, we can assume it is rerouted through Russia instead. Probably a big problem with a Belarusian diaspora living in Vilnius and Warsaw. Those people unhappy with the developments that we outlined and severe knock-on effects for all the other countries in the neighborhood. Such as? Well, most importantly for Ukraine. Surprisingly, perhaps, to many listeners, despite his reputation as Europe's last dictator, Lukashenko has been quite an effective ally of Ukraine since the war in East Ukraine began in 2014. He never allowed Russian troops to march across his territory, to open a second front against Ukraine from the north. There was some sharing of information. There was the opposite. Quite a few Belarusians went to fight in East Ukraine and nearly all on the Russian side. But on the whole, there was no northern front to sort of complicate matters for Ukraine. So if that is no longer guaranteed, everything is much more uncertain. Ukraine has a kind of Maginot line drawn through East Ukraine. But as in 1940, if you can get around it, then that's pretty useless. It sounds a bit like an extension of today. Already, Belarus seems to be closer and closer to Russia in the Russian orbit. We as the EU are being sidelined. What are factors, you know, there's a decade between today and 2030, the scenario. What are factors that could prevent Russia from achieving the situation that we see here in 2030? One would be greater Western engagement. Our assumption was that the EU is unable to decisively affect the scenario unfolding towards de facto integration, 
that it is preoccupied by coronavirus and internal problems. America might re-engage under a Biden presidency. We have a current rumor, which is extremely interesting, that Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, the woman who is defeated in the, or according to the official result, was defeated in the August 9th election, according to unofficial counts, was ahead, the leader of the opposition, if you like, that she will be invited to the Biden inauguration, obviously implying a substantive rethink under America. Biden historically was committed much more to Eastern Europe when he was vice president, Ukraine in particular. So that could change our scenario. Then the other big variable is the state of the Belarusian economy. At the moment, it's extremely weak, and all of that favours the scenario outlined. Belarus is desperate for money. There's hardly anything in the kitty. Ironically, it got a small loan from international money markets before the August 9th election, but it is extremely unlikely that it could repeat that, and it has no real relationship with the IMF. So the only person at the moment, the only country at the moment that can bail Belarus out is Russia. But long term, there are factors that could change that. Russia doesn't want to pay all the bills, can't afford really to keep the entire Belarusian economy afloat despite the relative difference in sizes between the two countries. And Belarus's economic strategy over the last five, ten years has been about trade diversification and growing the private economy, particularly the IT sector, which is very large, and having a more balanced pattern of trade and better balance between the new economy and the state industries of the old. And if you chuck that scenario out the window, how does Belarus actually survive economically? So there might be some rethinking of the recovery or survival model sometime later in this decade. The immediate thing is about paying the bills, and that, that's Russia. But there are longer-term questions about how the Belarusian economy actually operates. Would you say that the role for the West, you said more engagement, more Western engagement by the West, could prevent the scenario from happening? In part, I think the opening would be economic because Russia could not support Belarus long-term. So would you say Western engagement is primarily economic or should be primarily economic? And would that be trade or would that also be perhaps other things like helping Belarus modernize or diversify its economy along those lines? Belarus has a very state sector dominated economy, despite the growth in the new private sector, the IT economy that I just mentioned. It also proportionally trades very heavily with Russia, apart from onward export of oil and gas. So its IT exports are growing, but its main exports to Europe are still energy and energy-based products. Ironically, if you had five or ten years to allow more diversification, then it would integrate Belarus much more with Europe. People sometimes compare Belarus with Armenia. It's not a very good comparison. Armenia will always be much closer to Russia in security terms and economic terms. But you can imagine a scenario in which Belarus did diversify its trade and its economy. But the question is, how do you get there? Because at the moment, the EU's linkage and leverage is quite low. And if there is political repression, we are likely to move from sanctions on individuals, which is roughly where the EU is today, to economic sanctions as well. Um, we're moving in the opposite direction. Although there was a white paper published by, or a non-paper published by 
Lithuania, Poland and Romania, a carrot, if you like, to go alongside the stick, that if there was a, a different scenario unfolding, if there was dialogue with the opposition, if there was some end to state violence against protesters, that there are positive economic things that the EU can offer. Such as? Help with visas, help with access to markets, and help with negotiations with IFIs, international financial institutions, EBRD, IMF, etc. Those are the three offers, three carrots, if you like, in that non-paper. The other big thing is keeping the good parts or the dynamic parts of the Belarusian economy alive. In particular, this IT sector that we keep mentioning, 7-8% of GDP, it's already quasi-internationalized. Grammarly, a lot of listeners will have heard of. The guys who put all those annoying ads on YouTube when you're trying to watch something, that's Belarus-based. A lot of these companies are multinational, they have international investment, or they have registration in Cyprus or Malta. Uh, part of the EU. So keeping that IT economy going would be another positive that the EU could offer. In the scenario, there is a hint of a bit of tension between Belarus and Russia. Where do you think that could come from? And is there perhaps wiggle room for Belarus to break free from Russian dependence? Well, there's been a lot of tension between Russia and the current president, Lukashenko, going back to 2014, going back even to 2008, that Russia has redefined the definition of loyalty, what it expects from allies, a progressively higher and higher price. But Lukashenko never recognized the annexation of Crimea, 2014. Going further back, he never recognized the independence of Abkhazia or Satsetia, despite considerable Russian pressure. He played a technically neutral role in the war ongoing in East Ukraine. He has tried to push Minsk as the kind of hub of various regional diplomatic processes, most obviously the Minsk process over peace in East Ukraine. Before August the 9th, there were a lot of things that Russia wanted from Lukashenko that it wasn't really getting. It wasn't getting a military base in Belarus that it's pressed for for a long time. So would it get all of that under the scenario of a, initially a more dependent Alexander Lukashenko or then his son as successor? Would Belarus really want to give up its freedom of manoeuvre, its de facto sovereignty? Would it really give Russia everything that it wanted? I think it would have to give Russia a lot more because that would be the price of keeping these guys in power. But there still might be a gap between the extreme slavish fealty that Russia might expect and the practical loyalty that it gets. Because even a state with only nominal sovereignty still has some sovereignty. Would you really want, for example, a Russian base on Belarusian soil, which could be the focal point for full and final takeover if Russia wanted to act more radically? So any Belarusian leader might have to do some leading, some protection of national sovereignty. But that also sounds quite, well, let's say not optimistic, but hopeful, because the scenario at first reads like Belarus has been completely swallowed by Russia. But what you're saying is that there would be some areas where 
it could still be an independent actor from which basis it could engage with actors like the EU. The name for this scenario was Belarus is ours, in the same way that Crimea is ours, linguistically, but in a different kind of way. So not annexation, but de facto political control. Now, is that a clever thing for Russia to do because it avoids the controversy of a further annexation in post-Soviet territory and further Western sanctions? Or does it mean that you set up a scenario where you think you've suppressed sovereignty and independence and gained yourself a, a valuable ally, but residual sovereignty can still matter and still be an irritant in relations? And yet, yeah, the EU would still have some kind of relationship with some kind of technically independent state. To you, Andrew, I say thank you for joining us today. If you want to hear more, do pick up the Russian futures from our website, iss.europa.eu. Thanks for joining us today. 